And we are live from Donnybrook Bar on the Lower East Side. This is episode eight of America's longest-running Meerkat show. We still don't have a title for it, by the way. We're, we're looking for suggestions, so send those in uh, if you want. But um, if you're joining us for the first time, just a reminder. Uh, well, it's a reminder if you're not joining us for the first time. If you're joining us for the first time, we'll tell you how it works. Uh, we have a special guest tonight. This is Dave Itzkoff television writer extraordinaire for the New York Times. Um, he had a really exciting interview a couple hours ago. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but we're basically going to be sitting here for the next hour. We're going to drink. We're going to talk. We're going to take your questions. We're going to respond to your comments. Um, we have with us, this guy is one of the most knowledgeable and, and well-sourced television writers in the country. So anything, anything you want to know anything? about, yeah, I'm, I'm setting you up here. Okay. You know, just, right. I'm setting you up for the fall. Down the gauntlet. Um, but anything you want to talk about television-wise, shows that are on now, shows that used to be on. Send in your comments, send in your questions. We have Jeff, our moderator here. He's going to take them, and he's going to be relaying them to us. And, and let's just get it going. So while you guys start thinking of your questions, uh, what you want us to be talking about, let me just start with this. So, Dave, thank you for joining us. This is really exciting. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me to do whatever it is that I'm doing right now. Well, you're in for a few surprises. But, okay. um, but let, me, let me just start with this because... So we do a podcast as well. There'll be people listening to this, we hope. There'll be people listening to this on the podcast a few days from now. But it's Monday night as we're doing this. Right. And just a few hours ago, you got the first interview with John Hamm after the Mad Men finale. So he talked to you tonight. You put the, the interview up. I mean, I'm just curious, first of all, how does something like that come about? Well, let's see. I mean, I've, I've spoken to John Hamm on a few occasions over the past few months. Over the years, I mean, just since... Mad Men has been on. Uh, I don't want to pretend like he and I are besties, but he's been very generous in terms of saying anytime you need me for something journalistically. I mean, so did you, did you, just, like did you call him up? Did you well, call I, him I up? Wish I, like... could say I, I probably have a phone number, but I, I mean, you know, you do it through publicists and personal representation, and we had started asking even a few days ago because we had a feeling that he would probably play a prominent role in the Mad Men finale in some form or another without knowing for certain. Uh, how it would unfold. And, I mean, I had done a couple of pieces with him, one for the Black Mirror uh, Christmas episode that he was part of in December, and then we did a piece with him uh, as a prelude to this last half of the Mad Men season, just talking with him about his favorite moments in the, se in the seasons gone by. And even at that point, he had said, you know, again, whatever you need, if you ever want to talk again about, you know, about Mad Men. I don't think he's saying, you know, if you want to just hang out and drink a beer with me. And well, how do you know? Have you, have you ever made the offer? Maybe? <laughs> no, no. He's got I some mean, time I'm, on his hands now if I'm he's going to sure be in I'm New York. I'm not the only person, yeah. <laughs> well, so what was it? So it sounded like, I'm, I only read the, the transcript of it that they put up online, but he right. sounded like sounded like he was really happy with the episode. Yes. Sounded like he was... Because a lot of times, yeah, I don't know, it seems to me like the, 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 the this character is going to be attached to him for the rest of his life. No matter what yes. else he does, he's always going to be Don Draper, right? Oh, he's and very It, it seems like a lot of celebrities don't like that, but he seems comfortable with that. Well, I think for almost all the cast members that have been involved with Mad Men in particular, uh, I mean, with the exception of maybe, you know, John Slattery or... or uh, Robert Morse. I mean, none of them really had a, a profile or an identity before the show. I mean, you know, Elizabeth Moss had been on the West Wing. I guess that was as visible as they were. And so they've all been sort of lifted with it. And I think they're all incredibly grateful for that experience. And, and they, they, I mean, they, but they also know, especially that, like, this is, uh, maybe it's a ride you get to go on once in your career. That, like, when you have an affiliation that's that close with a character, I mean, who does that happen for more than once in a career? Maybe Lucille Ball and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I, I was, I was just going to go, well, yeah. I'll give you another one, Bob Newhart. Oh, okay. Bob great, Newhart okay. had two. Mary Tyler right. Moore had a couple, too. Right. But oh, yes, but uh, anyway. Everybody, literally everybody except I've the got four. Cast, <laughs> I've so got four, but. I've had two career Four out of 25,000 shows in the history of television. <laughs> um, right. And this is, this is a good time, too, just to people, you know, listening on, uh, on Meerkat, on Periscope, send in. What did you think of the Mad Men finale last night? I'm going to ask Dave about this in a second, but what did you guys think about it? I mean, it, there was so much talk in the run-up to it about what makes for a great finale, uh, people making references back to The Sopranos. Was that a good finale? Was it not? Did this one measure up to what you were expecting? And, and what did you think? I mean... I, I, knew, I knew you were going to ask this, and it's, it's such a delicate thing for me because I'm technically a reporter. I'm not a critic. I'm not really supposed to have opinions or use adjectives. But we break adverbs. all the rules on, okay, on Meerkat okay. Monday or whatever the hell we call this thing. <laughs> it's a delicate thing because, you know, 
I, I genuinely enjoyed the experience of watching it with my wife and our three-month-old son is in the car seat next to us. I mean, watching, maybe watching it, maybe just letting it seep in over him and 10 years from now we'll explain to him what Mad Men was and why our lives were defined by television, whatever that was. Uh, I, I, I found those last few minutes, I mean, we all know this scene now, it's already become legend of, you know, Don Draper being at this retreat and having this kind of transcendental experience and then they basically cut to the Coca-Cola commercial from right, 1971. Right. right, I'd like to buy the world. Can I Coke. tell you, that's an all day. This is the... <laughs> That song came on and I was like, I, I heard it 10 years ago. I said, that's so great. And I yeah. went and found it on YouTube and I listened to it 20 times and it's been in my mind all day and I want to put a bolt through my head right now. I'm so sick of that thing. <laughs> that ad was made 45 years ago right. and, it's, it, and today, all day, I'm singing to myself, I want a Coke. And probably the most iconic piece of advertising from like 1971 through the year 2000. I mean, in the, like, the, the whole like pre-internet era, let's say. Was. Is, that, is, that, so is that a but, satisfying ending for the show that, that he's on this journey... If we, one minute we think he's going to kill himself, the next minute yeah. he's meditating, going home, and then and then what does he do? He does what he's been doing yeah. the whole series. He makes an ad for a you know giant corporate client. It took me a real long time. I mean, I mean we're not even 24 hours later, but I will say it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around. Like in in the immediate aftermath, it didn't seem like like it fully like it didn't fulfill whatever my expectations were right away. I needed to. My wife and I were having the conversation, like, did he, is it, is it clearly implied by that ending that he even was the creator of that app? And he, but he told you yes in the interview, his, right? That right, was, well, uh, yeah. it comes to that, right? His, yeah. his answer seems to suggest that, yes, it, it is suggested that Draper goes back from this retreat and goes back to the office at some point and somehow is among the, uh, you know, a creator of that advertisement. That wasn't my immediate read on, which is interesting. And I know I'm in the minority, if not completely wrong, but I thought it was saying that, like, Draper is like he's having a legitimate uh, like he's having a genuine response. He, he's finding true transcendence, or he's he's evolving beyond Don Draper, and he's learning whatever the next step in his life is going to be. Whereas that commercial is basically commodifying that, it's co-opting that right. spirit just to try to sell people, you know, sugar water. And Draper's moved beyond. So this other interpretation that immediately started coming up that Draper actually goes back and creates the commercial, I kind of rejected that. I, I thought it was like too too cynical. But that is not only, I think, the prevalent interpretation, it seems to be the correct interpretation, if you want to call it that. But other people have found more nuanced readings even of that sequence of events. Well, you know, it's so, it's so funny, too, because I, I, one of my favorite things about a show like Mad Men is it, it airs Sunday night, and the next morning is reading all the recaps. Sure. Mad Zoller sites, whoever. And the thing I noticed struck this whole show, and it's just true in The Sopranos, it's true in all these other shows, every week there's, there's, there's like sort of this trendy speculation about where it's going. Right. It's never right. Remember, there's a whole thing for the longest time about how uh, his wife was going to become part of the Manson family. And right. People were absolutely convinced they're digging up historical, <laughs> you know. So I heard a few people last week raise the possibility that this ends with that Coke ad. Oh yeah, and this I is mean, the first time I can remember the speculation actually being right. Well, two things. I mean, you also have to remember that people were speculating that like Don Draper was going to become DB Cooper, right, the yeah, famous right. you know robber and plane hijacker right. and guy who bailed out on a plane somewhere and was never found. And so. There were just as many interpretations that were totally wrong, totally wrong. But also, I mean, with Mad Men, not to discredit people who did get it right, but that because it's set in a specific time period within an era of cultural history, we knew what year it was set in, the months it was building up to, we knew it was about advertising. There were strong indicators, or if you knew how to read the tea leaves, this was sort of predictable. And even the people who, quote unquote, predicted it. I mean, some people said there was going to be a scene where he literally walked back into the office and pitched the ad, and that doesn't happen. No, it's so, right. I mean, there are gradations of predicting it, but you're right. I mean, that people knew it, even to that degree, is pretty remarkable. But, I, I mean, you're right that also we're just living in a totally different era of television coverage, that, like, people were not only... People were posting their reactions in real time. There were dozens of, you know, recaps, probably within, like, the first 20 minutes to a half hour of the show being over. That certainly didn't happen with The Sopranos or Six Feet Under. There was a, a moment of, like, people at least taking the time to process what they had seen. 
But it is, it's, it's, and it's one of my favorite things about the, the age of Twitter and, and television shows like this is you watch it with everybody else, and as soon as the commercial comes on, you check Twitter. And what do they say? And it's, I realize it's because there were a bunch of times this season when I missed the first one episode. And then I can't watch it. It's on the DVR. I can't watch it for two or three days. And Monday afternoon, I'm sitting there on Twitter looking for, like, political news or something, and somebody's like, I can't believe what happened to me. And I was like, come on, don't give it away. But in that yeah. moment, you want to share your thoughts. You want to, like, hear what other people are, how they're say, processing I, it. I definitely left, let my own guard down with this. Thing. I don't usually like to tweet a whole episode in real time, and I don't – I try to respect people's, you know uh, – Fear of spoilers, their resistance to it. I don't want to. Run. But this was like this is like the Super Bowl. Like it was like clearly some people were engaged with it no. in the moment. Yeah, if you if you care about Mad Men, you were making a point right, to watch the right. finale if last you're on time. The West yes. Coast, you found a way to watch it on East Coast time. Right. And I but I did notice what you were saying that like I'd make a uh, I tweet something, you would get some traction. But it wasn't until the commercial breaks that like the tweets really started to pop because right. that's when you, you were right people were they come up it. for air basically for right. about, and, for about yeah, four minutes exactly. and then let me start faving and retweeting things well so this is a um not just because of Mad Men it's a great week to have Dave here Letterman after 33 years it's going to be final show on Wednesday night so if you want to talk about Letterman at all get your questions or comments in about that uh the big news with the Simpsons Show's been on 30 years now or something. Harry Shearer, maybe, apparently, leaving The Simpsons. We can talk about that. He also, Dave, had an interview. This is this is incredible. Yesterday, I, I opened up The New York Times on Sunday, and you got an interview with Matthew Weiner. That was great. Then I go to the back page, and you got an interview with Don Rickles, which was <laughs> awesome, and I want to ask Thank you about that, too, in a minute. Sure. But let me see if anything, are we getting any questions here? I'll turn to Jeff on the podcast. Everybody say hello to our friend Jeff, who's going to, hey, how are you? Um, <laughs> there's a... Uh, I don't know. There's not not a lot of action going on right now. Um, some somebody writes, "Look so good." Um, I, I, That's clearly directed at Steve. Uh, no, it's, it's both of you. It's apparent. I, you know. Jersey Highlands says advertising makes the world go round. Um, Chocolate Tart thought they could have skipped all but the last 15 minutes of Mad Men, and uh, it would have been okay. So I guess that person was a, was disappointed with the finale. Um, what did you think about the the Mad Men finale compared to other uh, other finales? That was that was gonna be my, that was gonna be my question to you. What is? I'll give you mine in a minute. But what is the best television finale you've ever seen? Oh man, I mean it's it's the, the sort of easy immediate answer is Six Feet Under, and I mean they had the benefit of sort of having the the premise of the finale was baked into the idea of the show. The whole series dealt with death. Every episode began with seeing how a character, not a character, but how a person died. And so, of course, I'm sorry to spoil a, a 15-year-old <laughs> show, but the finale dealt with seeing how all the principal characters of the show eventually die. And you see how death is, in a, is a very personal experience. Some people have what you might consider to be you know, pleasant death. Some are very unpleasant, but that's the reality. We all die. Do you know, it's interesting because tell me if I'm the only one who does this, and maybe some of the viewers can relate to this as well. Uh-huh. A show like Mad Men that is set 40, 50 years in the past, I found myself throughout the run of this show trying to project out the lives of all these characters. And I like I, the, the year that stuck out in my head the whole time for Don Draper is I, I felt the whole time he makes it to 1986. Why? Because I, I, I think he was born in 24. So he's okay. 62 years old. Right. I think he's, I mean, it's going to catch up to him at some point. Right. All the horror living is going to catch up to him. I think he gets 62 years. Does he get to see Predator? Does he get to see Rambo, First Blood? Yeah, yeah, I think that's about when he goes. He sees the second Rocky, and then that's, he can't, his heart can't take anymore. So he's... <laughs> Um, but just, just a, I want to add one thing to my response from before. I mean, another great finale, I think, and I'm going to totally nerd out here, but Star Trek The Next Generation. I don't understand why we don't talk about how did it. That, how did that add? So how did that end? Think about how complicated this is. I does mean, Shatner so, come or, back and take over the ship? No, or, or no, this? no. But, thank you. So <laughs> we have a Star Trek fan here. One person applauding. Thank God. Well, I, I, think about the fact, first of all, that, like, this is a show that theoretically could go on forever, and and they did come back to it later in the movies. I think at that point they knew there were going to be next generation movies, so they had to tell a story that in some way seemed to sort of bring finale to the TV series without basically shutting the door on any further possibilities. And they had this great kind of like time travel or time hopping storyline that looking at Picard, sort of in what what, he's, what was his 
present day, Picard at the beginning of the series, and then Picard in like a far-flung future when all the Enterprise adventures had kind of come to an end, and finding a way to tie all those threads of his life together. Again, without closing the door, killing off characters or anything like that, very, very hard. And I really have to admire, I mean, any series, and Mad Men included, where there isn't a sort of premise for the finale baked into the idea of the show. Even a series like Breaking Bad, we know what it has to do in the end. It has to tell us, really, you know, does Walter White live or die? He was a good person who did bad things, or a bad person who did good things. At some point, it has to basically weigh in on the morality of what he did. And with Mad Men, there's not sort of a clear answer of, like, what is the end of a show, of this show supposed to be? Uh, it's just, I feel as if their yeah. lives are continuing. Right. And you know, or Betty, not particularly, but the rest of them, their lives are just sort of, they've grown a little, and Jeff's giving me the signal here. We got, we're getting some, some good stuff coming in, I think. Um, you're just getting a lot of votes for uh, Newhart and MASH just having oh, the two, yeah. the two yeah. great finales. I personally thought the Sopranos uh, finale was, was the best that I've seen, um, but MASH and Newhart are popular. Uh, can I, uh, that was going to be my answer. The New Heart finale, 1990. And it was one of these things, I remember I watched it, I was, I was like 10 years old, and I was watching it with my mother, and, and I loved New Heart, even as, a, I didn't quite get it as an 8, 9-year-old, but I, there was a lot of it, I, I, there was a lot of it I did, I, and I, I loved the show. So we're watching the finale, and my mom went wild when he gets, I, I was terrified, he gets hit in the head with a golf ball, he goes unconscious, like, they killed the guy, that's terrible. <laughs> then he wakes up in bed, and is this, I, have no, I have no idea who this woman is because I've never, right, I've never seen, seen the Bob, Bob Newhart show. show. My mother goes wild. <laughs> I hear the audience screaming. I'm like, what is this? And she oh, explained okay. it to me. It was one of those things like five years later when I watched the Bob Newhart show. That's I was like, great. that is, that, excuse me, that is just brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, no, what a great sort of intergenerational moment. And to have somebody with you who can basically explain like what at the time was a very sort of abstract reference, or at least a reference that was lost on you. But how many people do you think genuinely remember the Newhart finale with the specificity that you do, or just remember that last scene with him and Suzanne Flechette? Or how many people... They don't remember that the, the inn was sold to Japanese businessmen right. who were turning it into a golf course, right, and then exactly. Joanna started walking around in a kimono, and, <laughs> and it was somebody sent me a clip from that. I, I haven't watched Newhart. It's one of those shows that I guess never really took off in syndication or you know like Seinfeld yeah. we're watching 15 yeah. years later but like Newhart for whatever reason I was watching a clip of it last night from it was a 1987 episode and the special guest star was George McGovern the <laughs> former U.S. Senator was because remember the Dick Loudon character Bob Newhart's character hosted Vermont Today right. on WPVI and the, the, the producer was you know Michael Harris the episode it was this great thing where like well, I'm getting way too much into Newhart well, weeds like here. On, this, is, this is like what set you off on your career, I think. This was clearly an influential moment for you. We have, a, have another question coming in here. Hang on, let me get the mic over to Juan, who's going to read this one off. Yeah, uh, so far there's a Butterwinkle who really loves your uh, enthusiasm. Okay. She really likes you. Uh, but she also what? wants to know what uh, Mad Men character do you think would should or would get a spinoff? A spinoff. Well, I, I mean, the, the, I think the the sort of sad answer is I don't think I don't think any of them will get spinoffs. I think I think Matt Weiner is pretty adamant. I don't know what ownership he still has of the show, but I think he's pretty clear that like he wants it to be self-contained. He doesn't want it to go any further. I think the fans would basically revolt if that happened. But clearly, the best spinoff would be the continuing stories of Sally Draper. You know, in her boarding school life, going off to college, becoming you know a, a young adult of the 1970s and 80s. I mean, that's just right. She, she's one of those. I, I I doing the like the projected death year for characters, and she's one of those you come to. She's like she's probably still alive now. Right. She's probably 60 years old, and you. I'm wondering what kind of life. Do you do this for all the shows you watch? <laughs> do I? Yeah, you projected death year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I had coach. I had I had coach kicking the bucket right. eight years ago, and now he's coming back. That's right. Who knew? Vicky okay. from Small Wonder. Yeah, Rebecca. Oh, she was a robot. Right, Vicky right. forever. Vicky will bury us all. <laughs> Small Wonder. There's a channel here, and um, I have a Time Warner cable here in New York. And Jeff, actually, Jeff, who's giving these questions to us, actually uh, alerted me to this a few months ago. Channel one thousand two hundred and fifty-nine on our cable 
runs nothing but like early to mid '80s sitcoms in blocks. So there was okay. there was like a small wonder block one night, followed right. Saturday Sunday, followed by Mr. Belvedere for an hour, followed by then they had uh, Evening Shade with Burt Reynolds right. and, uh, and and Mary Lou Henner. No, no, Lonnie Anderson oh, right. was uh, That's right. That's right. and J.R. Ferguson yes. from Mad Men. Yeah. Yes, wow. that's right. I say this is an incredible, an incredible channel. But yeah, that's actually there. Well, interesting to say spinoffs. There's also this. This is a trend now. We're seeing another. Say, the Coach. Coach was the sitcom on ABC in the '90s. Right. It is coming back now on NBC. Right. Uh, they're going to do an update of uh, Full House. Yeah. And there's a, there's a third one, isn't there? Empty uh, Nest or something? Or is that no, a, no, he's dead. Yeah, but yeah, I can't. Yeah. I, I nailed his death here. No, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on, on some level, I would say that these are all, you, you know, just terrible, heartbreaking, you know, lack of creativity kinds of ideas. But then you look at a show like Better Call Saul. Which they spun off from Breaking yeah. Bad, and it's brilliant. I mean, it's so well executed. It, you, you know, on paper, you would say, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad idea in principle to revisit the Bob Odenkirk character, even to go back in time with him a little bit. And they, but they found like, I mean, they they made that show, you know, substantially different enough from Breaking Bad. They gave it a somewhat different voice, and it's you know, it's a little more. It's it's getting better ratings than Breaking Bad, isn't it? It, I, I'd have to look at it. I, I'm sure it probably is just because, I mean, now, Breaking Bad was kind of a slow burn, that it took, right. you know, three or four years for that show to really become a phenomenon. People had to find it, you know, through Netflix. They had to, you know, binge the past seasons, so that by its last season, it really was a phenomenon. Uh, but you're right. That, like, I mean, just Better Call Saul as a, just as a proposition, now that people have caught up with it, and... Just people know Bob Odenkirk, and, you know, they know him from his I mean, show. sometimes, I, here's the other one that they're bringing back. I just thought of it now. Okay. This, I, this was, um, I don't know what network is doing this, and it might be NBC, and I'm sort of an NBC employee, so I won't, okay. I'll refrain so from commenting too much, idea. but it's fantastic Uncle idea. Buck. Right. So there was, Uncle right. Buck was the movie. People remember the movie with John Candy. Uncle right. Buck was a sitcom. Do you remember this one? For six episodes. On CBS? Yes. Oh. Kevin Meany. Right. The comedian right. Kevin Meany. This is like 1990 to 1990. Did he wear the bow tie? Yeah, I think that's right. The Kevin Meany signature. Um, he was Uncle Buck for like six episodes. Right. Show got canceled. Now, 25 years later, who comes up with this idea? Like, you know what we need to bring back? It, was, it lasted six episodes on CBS in the fall of 90, but we're going to bring it back in 2015. Uncle Buck. I'm, I'm excited, though. Are you? Are you? No, right, because it's NBC. <laughs> the movie. Yeah, no, but I am excited. The movie, I remember the movie. The movie was, it was dark. It's remembered as a comedy, but there was a lot of darkness to that movie. I, you know. Anything after, literally after one episode, after the pilot, it will bear. I mean, it, it already is so far removed, or so different from the movie. But all they need is the premise, and two episodes later, it can be a totally you know it's what, a sink or swim on its own. That's that's the key to this to the spinoff, right? Because you think of a, a, the most successful spinoff I can think of is Frasier. And not, not after Mash. That was not <laughs> after Mash or Trapper John MD <laughs> or, or some of the other. Yeah, was the, are those the only two that came off of Mash? Uh, that I can think of, but I mean, right. So you know, the Norman Lear shows yes. had a lot, like, All in the Family gave you the Jeffersons, it gave you Maud, it gave you um, uh, Good Times, was that, right. that was not right? right. So you, you, got, you got three off that Wait, one. If you were on two episodes of All in the Family, you got a spinoff. Was, Those were the days. Yeah, as they said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you have, I, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. You know, I was gonna, all I was going to say is that, you know, I mean, it just it's a sign of the times that we're living in it. I mean, I think that the, the networks and the studios are so... I mean, they're just they're just running for cover. That they won't any any property or title that has any familiarity to an audience is immediately better than an original idea. And in an environment like that, I mean, how do you create a show like Mad Men or the original Breaking Bad or I mean, all the shows that I think we are fond of right now? If they had to be based on existing properties. These shows would just never get made. Let's go to uh, Jeff. Sounds like we have someone over here. I was just going to say, well, Pastry Plate notes that Rhoda was also at all in the family spinoff. Um, you also just had votes for... No, no, Rhoda was in Mary Tyler Moore's spinoff, wasn't oh, it? Yes. Yeah. There we go. That person is banned. Never no, that's the yeah, Pastry Plate. He's our biggest <laughs> fan. I, I might have misunderstood. He just mentioned Rhoda, and I thought... I was thinking that was an All in the Family spinoff as well. Um, you also had picks for Mary Tyler Moore and... Um, Parks and Rec is having great finales. I don't know either of those finales myself, but um, you also hear a little bit of topic changes. One was out of the DC-based politics shows, West Wing, Veep, Alpha House, House of Cards. 
which is the best representation of DC. We also had a couple questions about last night's Game of Thrones, which as a fan was I, I had strong feelings about. Um, Positive or negative? Very negative. Over, overwhelmingly, uh, kind of broke the show a little bit. But, um, yeah, but well, that, that's been a very hot topic on, on Twitter all day. Yeah. I don't, any thoughts about well, that? Well, let's, let's dive in. Let's take the DC one first. Uh, that's, I'll just defer to you. I, well, I'm curious. Where's the, I mean, look, they all, they all bother me. DC. I've never worked there. Oh, this, so. And you're not missing yeah. anything. I think the most realistic <laughs> DC-based show is, uh, is The Americans. Um, which you know the early '80s Cold War thing. I, look, I, 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 House of Cards drives me crazy. It's 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 reached the point. I watched the first two episodes this season. It's just so comically over the top. You don't think that every politician has a personal narrative that they carry on with an imaginary camera that follows? I mean, it is not uncommon for a, a, a vice president of the United States to. Um, uh, murder somebody on the DC subway system. I mean, that's obviously everybody gets every every. We know Mondale used to do that all the time, but you know. <laughs> when you get a, when you take the oath of office, you get two free murders. Right, that's every, you're protected. Yeah. No, the best was I, I think I remember like he pushes her onto the tracks and he's he's hiding in the far corner of the escalator because that's where they won't see the vice president. And then he, he puts on he puts on a pair of sunglasses and that's it's like that's like all Joe Biden has to do. He wants to like. This right. for days, it's, for any, it's your free pass yes. to do anything, though. You know, it's not just murder. If you just want to like disappear and blend into the crowd, all you gotta do is put your sunglasses on. Oh, oh no idea who this guy is. In his mind, that scenario is playing. <laughs> so I can't, I can't take that show seriously. I'm sorry. I, I hear people who say like, you know what? That's the most accurate DC. I'm like, that's crazy. It absolutely isn't. Um, Alpha House, eh, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It was a little schlocky, but it was all right. Um, what are the other uh, V? I, I didn't watch V, but I, I couldn't stand the West Wing because I, 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 my thing on the West. Here's my thing on the West Wing. It's, it's my. It's more my general Aaron Sorkin critique. I think you take the average any Aaron Sorkin character, you can spend your entire life, every job, every family situation, every you might meet one person as well spoken as every single Aaron Sorkin character. Right. And it's this world of twenty people who speak in these beautiful soliloquies, yeah. and there, there's no self doubt, and there's. All it, it's, it's, all, it's too it's much. All, it's aspirational. I, yeah. I mean, that's that's how you have to approach his shows. Uh, these are characters that they speak the way that we wish we could in these situations, and I think that's where he's writing from. That they, that's this is how he wishes his elected officials behaved. And if you can if you can allow yourself to think that idealistically, then I think you can totally enter his world. Yeah, I couldn't do it. Because uh, yeah. you're a hard bitten cynic. Well, so what, what the, of those four, what did you like? Well, what, just from a TV standpoint, which of those do you like the well, best? Well, I mean, I find Veep the most satisfying just because it is, you know, I mean, it's it's just so freewheeling with the comedy of it. And, like, over the course of its first season, it kind of learned, like, let's forget about trying to, like, emulate how we think DC works and we're not going to care so much about policy. Let's just make a good kind of workplace comedy about people who are allowed to use every swear word under the sun. And it just got so rollicking. And, and, you know, if you knew any of Armando Iannucci's British shows, you could see the influence of it coming in more and more, where he just lets the characters just totally rip into each other and just be kind of brutal. And there's something satisfying about that. That's, I think that's how... If, it's aspirational in a different way from Sorkin's world. It's aspirational in a way that we wish we could tear into our most hated colleagues, but we restrain ourselves from doing it. Uh, yeah, I, of those four, of the four, that's the one I like the best. So what about this? Okay, I got to admit, I am not a Game of Thrones. I, I saw one episode in, in the long run of this show. I've seen one episode, which apparently is the one episode you shouldn't see out of sequence because everybody died in it. So about a, right, I saw that one, and now I'm like, I can't go back and watch it because I know how, they, how it all ends for them. I, I like to try to imagine when they're going to die, but I know when they're going to die, so what's the point? But what? You know every character on that show is somehow going to die and die brutally, so it doesn't that really subtract anything from your experience. You know what it was like? It was like when I was a kid, I watched, uh, uh, my parents made me watch the movie Gandhi. Okay. And I didn't, I was only like seven or eight. And here's the thing, like I had not been introduced to the idea of non-linear storytelling. So if you remember the movie Gandhi, it starts with him getting shot. And so I'm like, this, this is a two and a half hour movie, right? Like, great, we can just go home. No, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, he's just been shot in the head. 
obviously he doesn't die because there's two hours 28 minutes left in this movie then they're doing the state funeral and he's in the open casket I'm like oh he's gonna get up now isn't he it took me 20 minutes until my parents convinced me, no, Gandhi's really dead. Now we're going back to, like, early years Gandhi. So anyway. How old were you at the time? I, 15, 16. No, I was, uh, <laughs> I think I was, like, in third grade. It was a Thanksgiving movie on CBS, I remember. That's when networks used to run movies right. in prime time. It'd be commercials every six minutes. I was watching 48 Hours. I don't know. You were watching Gandhi. Our experiences were very good. I wasn't allowed to watch 48 Hours. Even, even the censored version was, was too scandalous. But, uh, uh, so, so Game of Thrones, he, sa- he says, Jeff says, like not just disappointing. Like might have. And I know Jeff loves the show Game of Thrones. What do you think of the episode? Well, it's it's you know I don't even think it's a subjective or it's a did you like it did you not like it thing. I mean let me set up what has happened. The show already has a track record with two things. One, adapting the books, the novels that the series is based on in ways that are often different. Uh, or, that is, the TV episodes often do things that are different than what's depicted sometimes in the books, and that concerns fans from time to time. But the show also has, I, I would say, a documented issue, and I've written about this myself, of putting female characters in situations where they're either often threatened with sexual violence or the characters are raped. Uh, this has happened on more than one occasion over the history of the show, and where uh, scenes that were depicted a certain way in the book were changed so that the character is raised. And you can make the argument that yes, in a very desolate, bleak living situation, it's not unthinkable that women would often be sexually uh, threatened or would be subjected to violence in this way. All true. But it happens at such a frequency on the show that it seems to kind of, it just cheapens the notion, of, or cheapens the uh, the delicacy and the, the problems, the the danger of, of rape, the real-life dangers that women do face, the, the experience that they have, the aftermath that they go through. Uh, and in last night's episode, you had another scenario where, uh, again, a deviation from the book where a character was, in the final sequences, was, was raped. And this has now happened so many times on the show that you, you can't help but wonder, you know, why does this keep happening? Why do its creators kind of keep... Uh, you know, working these kinds of scenes into it, and uh, there's not an easy answer for it. I don't. It's not. Uh, it's not. Is it to say I like the episode? I didn't like the episode. It's just. It's. It's so problematic now, or it's so frequent now, or it's happened enough times that it's. People had similarly polarized responses today. Maybe it just got drowned out a little bit because of the the Mad Men finale, and that's what most of people's energies were focused on. But you are also seeing people push back against this most recent. Game of Thrones episode. There was a website called the Mary Sue, which is a, a pop culture site, and they had a post today saying, we're not going to run any more promotional type posts for Game of Thrones anymore because we just don't feel that they're taking this issue seriously. So now, speaking of uh, controversy, uh, the other thing getting a lot of attention today, and it got lost a little bit with, with Mad Men as well, was Louis C.K. on SNL. Well, Live. So he made, if you guys didn't see this, he made an extended riff in his monologue about uh, child molestation. What did you, what did you think uh, of it? The, well, I mean, let's put this in context. I mean, his the monologue was about... If you want to say there were three sort of major topics in the monologue, one was about, you know, growing up in the 70s, how, you know, he was exposed to more racism and is probably a slightly more racist person because he grew up in the 70s. Then he was talking about the Middle East and the Israel-Palestine conflict and how his two daughters are like Israel and Palestine because they fight so much and nobody pays attention to their argument anymore. Right. And then he talked about growing up again in the 70s and there was a child molester in his town and what the child molester was like and how what child molesters risk because they molest children. And it, it must be so good to them if they're willing to risk all these things. Now, I'm not saying I support any of these viewpoints, but he's delivering a comic monologue and the point of the monologue is I'm going to try to take on the most problematic, third rail, offensive right. topics right. on on Saturday Night Live, which has become, you know, more of a mainstream show. It's it's certainly not, you know, way out on the fringes anymore like it was in nineteen seventy five. I'm gonna so on this mainstream show that I'm hosting the season finale of, I'm gonna give a slightly delicate, slightly touchy monologue and I know it's gonna make you uncomfortable. I don't believe for a minute that Louis C.K. 
supports child molestation. I don't even know for a fact that he really grew up in a town with a child molester. He was he had a he was riffing on a theme and he was trying to while making you laugh, he was trying to make you uncomfortable. What I wonder is what the discussions were like behind the scenes in the days, in the hours, maybe in the minutes leading up to that, was he getting pushback? Because a lot of the old SNL stuff you talk about, like whether the Richard Pryor, you know, right. there was stories of, of Lauren Michaels having to fight with the well, with the right. network, and I, you know, I wonder about that. I'm getting the signal from Jeff. we got another question here. Let's see what it is. Just a couple things. I want to give credit to someone named Maverick. Back, going back a little bit, he points out that Happy Days was a spinoff from Love American Style, which then spun off Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy. So, spin-off trivia, I thought... Matt, what one? And Jody Loves Chachi. Jody Loves Chachi, lest we forget. So, uh, Maverick uh, got the uh, spin-off trivia game one, I thought. Um, Segway a little bit to another topic I I assume you want to talk about. Questions about favorite late-night shows. uh, What one do you watch? So, favorite late-night shows... What do we watch? So I, I got I to gotta tell you, like this, and I've, I was thinking about this a lot this week because it's, it's Letterman's final week, and I can't tell you the last time at 11:35 I flipped over to watch Letterman, and yet he is my favorite late night host. I can remember as a kid staying up 12:35, you know, to get to get late night. Late night was so innovative and I, just. I went to a taping of one of his last NBC shows. Uh, you know, as he was preparing to leave to later go over to CBS, I was there that last spring or summer. It was like an episode with Glenn Close, Patrick Ewing, and I think Irving K. Levine were the three guests that night. Uh, so yes, I really cared about Letterman too in that era and, and all the way through, straight to the end. But I, I understand the, the experience that you're probably having. That, I mean, I watch The Daily Show every night. Most nights I'll, I'll stick around also for Larry Wilmore. But it's increasingly rare that, like, any of the network shows I will watch in real time. I'll DVR them and watch them the next day, or if there's, like, a good viral clip that everybody's talking well, about. Well, that's, that's what they're going for now, right, is much more the viral clip than the, you know... Yeah, I don't know, I don't know how much they are specifically engineering their shows for virality, but there certainly is a knowledge and an understanding that these shows are getting, you know so much more in addition to the ratings that they are still getting on TV the amount of viral traffic they're getting on the internet is so much greater and that if you can pull off what a Jimmy Fallon or a Jimmy Kimmel does with a good viral clip that gets you know 30 million views then you know who even cares how many people watch it, it late at night it's funny though because like and I was I was thinking about it today and I, I did some just killing time on YouTube which is one of my favorite activities and I was looking at old late night clips Right. That, that late, right. so the late show was the last 20 years, but in the 80s and early 90s, it was late night on NBC right. for Letterman. And it was like, one thing I realized is how much he changed late night. Oh. So right now, so much of the talk is about how he's being kind of eclipsed by this younger generation who have innovated, you know, Fallon and, and, and Kimmel or whatever. But it's like, he's the guy who innovate, who made like the, the idea of television as a parody of itself. Right. That was that was what Letterman was doing. And, sure. it, you know, he go, I, and then I was watching... I saw this one and I had totally forgotten. He did, um, when Conan first started, in like the fall of 93, and, and remember, Conan was not Conan, and everybody's like, why'd this guy get the show? Right. The show's failing. And Letterman was beating Leno at the time, so Letterman's the top of the world. And Letterman liked Conan and, and felt bad for him. So Letterman told him, I will come on your show right. some night. Right. So Conan's doing this interview with Joan Collins. Right. And Joan Collins is just talking about she just won this million dollar lawsuit or something, and it's just it's like she's like it's all going to taxes anyway. And Letterman just comes out on stage, unannounced and everything, sits down. The place is going crazy, and then he starts talking to her about like he's like you know when you were on my show last month, I showed a nude picture of you. Is that are you offended by that? And she's like oh no, of course not, darling. And then just he just leaves, and it was like it was just awesome. And I was like that's just such a great moment, you know. Certainly, like that sense of like spontaneity of anything can happen. I, I agree. That's it feels a little bit lost. Not that it never happens anymore. You saw it a little bit. It was really like in the waning days of, of the Colbert Report. There were those kinds of zany. Who knows? Who I love his final episode. Yeah. And even like these last couple months of Letterman, the last couple of weeks. The I mean, it's been you know tribute after tribute, but some of them have been so touching and so. I mean, Adam Sandler, Norm Macdonald. Norm Macdonald, I saw. Yeah. Beautiful. And like you see these guys, these kind of 
hard-bitten, cynical, you know, they play it with a straight face, but they're deeply ironic comedians, and really, like, showing genuine emotion for the first time in years, if not ever. To see Norm MacDonald almost kind of break down and cry. He did break down, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just, it shows you the level of, of just the influence and the importance that Letterman has in their, you know, cosmology. Do you, do you remember the... Um it's an old SNL sketch. I, I make too many references to these, but in, in the 1988 presidential campaign, the, the fake Bush Dukakis debate. Oh, sure. So you got John Lovitz and Dana Carvey, and you got Dana Carvey as Bush. Just he's he's stumbling, he's bumbling, he can't complete a, a right. sentence. And they go to John Lovitz. And he goes, I can't believe, can't believe I'm losing, losing this, guy. this guy. I always think of that line when I think of Letterman versus Leno. How did Leno beat Letterman? Just just kill him because there, there was two years there right when he first started cbs where letterman's beating leno every night he's on top of the world right. and then it, it switched about 1995 well, you and know, from the then on the turning point was leno Hugh, having Hugh, Hugh Grant. Grant. right if they had that pre-existing booking i think he was there to promote like but they stuck with months. them they right. stuck with them right well i mean on the one hand it shows you just how fickle uh you know a viewing audience is that you give them one opportunity to tune into the other guy and then maybe you've lost them for months, if not years. It's a phenomenon. But you talk about like you talk about like viral bits these days and everything. And I think back to Jay, and I, I don't mean to, to jump all over Jay Leno here, but I think like he had the lamest comedy bits. None of those. If you were judged by like a viral standard, his might go viral because they were so bad. But God, well, I think that they had a specific aspiration to do a, a kind of big tent show. Right. Let's, let's deliberately try to do something that will bring in the dancing Edos. I remember that one. Like, yeah, you right. Know. Right. Exactly. How many nights in a row did they? Do? Right. Wow. They're judges. They look like Lance Edo. They're dancing. Thank you. That's a great contribution to culture. You know. But I think that I mean there was a certain uh, there was clearly a calculation on this. They knew okay Letterman is going to try to do the you know the arch smart comedy. And we know on some of them that's that's not going to bring in everybody. That's polarized. So let's get people. Let, let's do the show that's at minimum going to bring in the bigger numbers. Let's make it feel more inclusive. Let's and whatever it takes to do that. And yeah, over a period of 20 years, did it kind of like you know chip away or smooth out whatever kind of edge Leno had in the 80s? Absolutely. But it also it brought in a larger group. right, and that's that's the other thing you get when you, you go back and look at the old Letterman clips is how many times Leno was on the show, and they're just they're yeah. buddy buddy, and then you know. I'll tell you, I remember being like ten years old and my mom taking me to Kutcher's to see Jay Leno do stand up there, and I mean this is my ten year old memory of it, but it was just hilarious and so like spontaneous and off the cuff, and he just was doing crowd work and just hey where are you from what do you do and just riffing off of that and it was it was just so like. You know, it felt like it had an edge to it. And, I, and 20, 20 years later, you wonder where did that person Wasn't Jay Leno in a movie with Pat Morita? Yes. Well, there was a brief moment where they thought he's the Doritos What was it? You know what it was called? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's like Crash Course or Collision Course or something. Yes. And I, I can see the cover of the, the video. They're back-to-back. It's Pat Morita and Jay Leno. <laughs> like in a jeans jacket or something. There's some great movies made in that era. I gotta, you know. <laughs> if you had a stand, if you had a five-minute stand-up act. Collision course. Yes. We, collision course. Somebody remember that instantly. Andy points out that it's collision. Course. Andy, you're, Andy, I love you. That's that's fantastic. I, that sounds right. So next episode, we will live tweet collision course. <laughs> no, you're right. If you're, Kevin Meany did a couple uh, Tonight Show appearances. Next thing you know, he's Uncle Buck. Well, that's it. Right. A, this was like the heyday of if you had a five-minute routine, at minimum, you were going to get, you know, a sitcom guest appearance. If that worked out, that led to your own sitcom. If that worked out, you got your own movie. It was just, that was the, the curses on Orem of that era. That, and that was the thing they did. And, and, and Letterman only, Letterman did this when he had heart surgery, I remember. Um, but otherwise, you don't see anymore is the guest host well, on, on Late also, Night. But think about, you know, he did that, I mean, only by the skin of his teeth because he literally could not appear on his own show. Right. And he was so fearful that the network was going to bring somebody else in as a regular guest host who was going to do a better job than him, and he'd never go back to his own show. Letterman never had a, a recurring guest host on uh, show. Leno never had a recurring guest well, host. Well, Leno just never had guest hosts. Right. He just, they just did repeats or right. whatever. Yeah. I mean, it was 
not like Carson where he had Joan Rivers, he had Jay Leno. Like, if those guys learned anything, it was never let anybody else... Right, because Leno ends up pushing Carson out. As I learned from the great movie, uh, speaking of great movies in yeah. the late 80s, early 90s, The Late, late Shift, yes. the, uh, the guy who played... Who was it? The, uh, well, John Michael Higgins played Letterman. Is, is, he was later in something, right? What was, oh, yeah, well, he, I mean, he did a lot of the, uh, the Chris Guest... Uh, yes, you know, that's, that's right. I feel like a guy from Arrested Development was in that. I'm trying to think. He played a, he played a, a lawyer in Arrested Development. He was in the late shift somewhere. I, I, I have to say at this point, I mean, Bill Carter's book is so superior. Not that the movie itself isn't highly entertaining, <laughs> but Bill Carter's book is immaculate. It's a classic piece of late night TV reporting. Everybody should own at least two copies. Right? And I own one. Okay. Um, but I will tell you, the late shift is one of those movies that... 15 years ago or so, it would be on Comedy Central all the time. And it was like, there was a, there was a weekend at Bernie's, there was there was The Late Shift, there was Earth Girls Are Easy, right. they had this, this whole, remember that? That's yeah. something charming about the era when Comedy Central didn't really have a lot of money. Because it was all, like it was, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000, yep. Monty Python reruns. Uh, uh, the, the show that I just wrote about with Don Rickles, uh, oh, CPO, uh, CPO Sharky. Sharky. They re- that, the last Tell time it ever aired on TV, it was like 1992 on a Comedy Central marathon. That would never happen. Today. So, so you, just, so John, Don Rickles yes. is 89 years old. They got CPO Shark. It's DVD. Is that yes. what it's coming out on DVD? Yes. Okay. So, th- I love this interview you run in the New York Times. People didn't read this. You run the transcript, and I mean. He's giving you shit from the minute you get him on the phone. And you're printing the whole thing. Well, but that's his nature. I mean, first of all, I mean, yes, Don, Don Rickles, I mean, by definition, he's going to... Oh, he's a ball buster. That's yes, his, yes, right. Yes, exactly. But he's also, deep down, a real sweetheart. I mean, a genuinely nice guy. And what's remarkable about CPO Sharky now, I mean, it was on the air from, like, 76 to 78. He plays, you know, uh, a naval officer running a bunch of, you know, misfit recruits. And, you know, wacky shenanigans ensue. But, you know, Don Rickles was really in the Navy. He fought in the Philippines for three years during World War II. So, I mean, he had an authentic experience that he could bring to this show. And he was, I mean, do you hear him tell the story? I mean, he was the sort of class clown of his naval group as well. And that, I mean, an era and an, uh, an experience where humor was in very short supply, you can imagine. And, like, just to be the guy who, like, goes around busting chops and lifting everybody's spirits and making fun of whatever was wrong or different about you. I mean, you need a guy like that in every platoon. And, I mean, amazing that he turned that experience or that sort of formative, those formative years into, you know, the stage presence that he became. And he's, I mean, the story I always heard was when he, the first time he became good friends with Frank Sinatra. And, <laughs> and they met at sort of the height of the Rat Pack era. And so what happened was Rickles was performing one night. Sinatra comes in you know, later than everybody else, and Rickles sees him from the stage, and he goes, Frank, make yourself at home, hit somebody. Right. <laughs> and they became, they became fast friends, and then I, the other, my other favorite thing about Rickles was, for all that persona, I still remember he played uh, Robert De Niro's enforcer in right. Casino, which is the, the most <laughs> random piece of casting I've ever seen. But he was effective, he was yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah he was, he was like right. the pit boss or something, but he also, he kind of He, he gets, grabbed the shotgun at one point, <laughs> <laughs> he's like... But he gets, he gets busted around, like doesn't like Pesci step to him or one of the other right. guys, like, he gets smacked around a little bit in that movie too, it's almost, it's like hard to watch, like you don't want to see Don Rickles get hit. I know, he's Mr. Potato Head right. from, uh, from, from Toy Story, that's the other one. <laughs> Let's see, we're getting some more here, I think. Uh, you just had a few questions and comments a while back about the uh, Comedy Central late night. People, somebody saying that Larry Wilmore is very good, uh, not getting enough attention, uh, wondering what Colbert is going to be like taking over for Letterman, maybe without his um, talk show uh, conservative persona. Question, if anything, has been announced about what Jon Stewart is going to be doing once he stepped down. What's you, you mentioned Larry Wilmore a minute ago, and actually I mentioned like there's one, 11:30 on Comedy Central. I got to admit, like I just I stopped paying attention. Is it, you say it's, it's good though? I no, I, I totally in, enjoy it. I think that they're still going through a kind of evolution. Night, you know, night to night or week to week. But they were at the beginning. They were very committed to I think an idea of like having a, a long panel discussion on every episode, and now they're kind of moving to more kind of freeform comedy bits, character pieces. It's I, look it. Nobody envies the guy who has to follow Colbert. Right. It's such a, uh, a high bar to clear. But I think, I mean, Wilmore came in with a, a very unique voice. And certainly, you know, I mean, he's somebody who just has more fluidity, I think, talking about issues that are in the news right now, certainly. 
I mean, there's, race is always going to be a focus of you know current events, but so many issues of late that he can speak to in a way that his day's experience allows him to that a John Stewart or Colbert couldn't. And I think they're trying to take uh, you know make more opportunities out of that if they can. Uh, so what about like? I read this too. Uh, Colbert is replacing Letterman, and in a way that I mean, from the network standpoint, you can see that's a, that's a no-brainer. But Letterman, maybe it was in the interview with you, said he was not consulted by CBS. Right. On, sounds like maybe that wouldn't have been his choice. Well, no, he did say. I mean, it sounds like you know among his top choices, Colbert would definitely be in that mix. John Stewart, he thought would be a clear contender. Also, he also talked about. You know, why not hire a person of color? Why not hire a woman? I think he was as surprised as anybody else that that didn't happen. And I think you're right, also disappointed that, not that he has a vote in it, not that they should say, okay, Letterman, you know, you get to choose or you get to have a 20% share, but at least, you know, hey, what do you think of these people? And I understand why you'd be at least surprised that that doesn't occur, not even out of like a sense of propriety, but Letterman is one of the great comedy minds of all time. He's done the geek for 25, 22, 25 years. What does he think about who's there right now who could potentially do it? So, surprising, but Colbert makes total sense. And if you saw him at the CBS upfronts just this past week, previous week, you know, he came out and did, you know, five, ten minutes of comedy. And even though he was not... So what was that? I don't think a lot of people had the experience of watching Stephen Colbert do comedy when he's not being the character. What was he like? You know what, though? I mean, to say that he was not the character, it's just kind of a nominal thing. I mean, it's just like checking a box or not checking a box. He's still done... It was very arch. It was still very kind of self-deprecating, self-referential. It was all about, you know, how do I figure out who I am? Uh, he made a joke. Let me see if I can get the language right. But you know, he's riffing on all the other CBS shows, the nine million, you know, CSIs and NCIS shows they have. And he said, you know, mostly what my show is going to be is, you know, solving crimes by zooming in on pubic hair. Now, I mean, that's a joke that he totally could have told on the Colbert Report as the quote-unquote right. Colbert character, or he can do it as himself as the host. And I think. Very quickly, people are going to find there's not really a substantial difference between the character and the person. I, I think he will, he will, it will be such a smooth transition into that hosting chair. I mean, and having said that, I'll be totally wrong now. But that's what I think will happen. By the way, do you know what? So Letterman's going off the air this week. Right. Bears premiering in September. What are right. they doing in those months in between? Do they? Do we know? Well, they're not going to have... It's not going to be like guest hosts of Late Show. I think what they're doing is they're just going to show... Like in the 11.30 hour, they will show like reruns of other uh, CBS programs. And, but oh, then, they're not going to show... So they're, just gonna, they're not showing comedy. They're going to show like CSI. I think that's what they're doing. But then they're CSI also... CSI Late. <laughs> but, but, but then they're still going to show new episodes of The Late Late Show with James Corden. Right. Which is very strange that they're going to have... You know, continuing to have this does not seem that well thought out. I mean, you would think they would sync up these. When Carson retired, Leno came in the next Monday night, right? But fairly soon after, right? Well, I, I mean, they've got to give Colbert some time to get settled and figure things out. The lay of the land. If anything, it's just kind of like a free period for Corden to continue to experiment, try things out, not worry about ratings. I think it's a given that like it'll just. You know, if if you're Seth Meyers and you have the lead-in of uh, Jimmy Fallon, you're going to clobber James Corden, who has no lead-in. So you get like three months of just messing around. Don't even worry about the consequences. I, I mean, if I'm Colbert, I'm, I'm worried. What if uh, what if CSI takes off at 11:30 and then suddenly <laughs> my ratings are are less? It'll be like, let's uh, we're coming to the final few minutes. We got another question here from Juan. Uh, uh, there's this uh, one periscope where he wants to know about why is there a lack of women in late night? Well, so, uh, did I see something this week about Samantha B getting, is she going to follow Conan, right. is that right? She's going to have a TBS uh, show of her, and they haven't said specifically when it will air. Uh, but presumably it's going to be some kind of a daily show type. It's going to be about pop culture and current events. I believe they want it to be nightly. So in some way it has to fit in with Conan. 
on their schedule, whether it comes before or after. But it is a, it is kind of a, just a mysterious question that you only really have one, you know, current female late night host. You have Chelsea Handler, who had her own show on Ease, now developing a show for Netflix. Uh, and I, you know, I asked her about this a couple of weeks ago. I said, you know, why aren't there more female late night hosts? And she said that. Many other female comedians can do the job, but several of them don't want to do the job. Not in the sense that they don't want to be out there, they don't want to be considered in the same things, but that late night itself has become so kind of structured and so... It's just so hard to break out I mean, you got, you got to think somebody would hire Amy Poehler if she if she wanted it. Or maybe and, she did what but I would, right, I would I think, think they'd hire it. It's more the issue that maybe just Amy Poehler or the Amy Poehlers of the world don't want those gigs they seem they just seem to like they want to innovate they want to find new ways to get themselves across and in some ways the most innovative thing to do right now is not to do a late night show that those are so rigid and they're so kind of boxed in in their own way why not find a completely new way to come across to an audience and if you have that kind of following there have got to be other ways to do it uh, we are down to the final couple of minutes. I'm gonna. I have a few questions. Random. Actually, we're gonna turn to you Jeff first. We have. Uh, well, I was. I was gonna do a couple things. There was just a comment here that I like. I think it was an autocorrect thing. Comment from Scott just says arsenic hall. Um, <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Um, and I was gonna ask Dave real quick about his network book, which I read and loved. The movie network. I love the movie network. <clears throat> One of my favorite movies. And then I, I watched Marty after that, which I'd never read because you you talked about it so much in the book. Um, and I, I loved Marty, kind of to my to my surprise. I don't know if you want to say anything quick about. Uh, that movie and the, and the book or you are well, well, yeah I mean network I had to watch network I remember is in a, in a college class and and the thing that always it stuck in my mind for 20 years it it foretells in a lot of ways the future of television news oh, absolutely I mean just I, I will try to say this as, as economically as I can but network is a 1976 movie written by Patty Chayefsky so there's no internet that exists at the time there's only the three networks and a fourth fictional network that he invents for the movie and their lead news anchor goes insane, but then becomes the most popular anchor on TV because he just says whatever he feels and basically becomes, you know, the Glenn Beck of his day, becomes incredibly popular and outpaces all of these sort of quote-unquote legitimate TV news shows of the time. Uh, and hopefully the way I've summarized it, you can understand why it was so prescient that he basically predicted that if, if news anchors just sort of throw out you know, all credibility and all sort of uh, objectivity and just shoot from the hip and talk from the spleen that they will become more popular and that uh, kind of an audience hungry for demagoguery just can't help but respond to that. We, as human beings, we're just so taken by that. That becomes way more interesting to watch and listen to than a kind of straightforward news show and that's the era that we're living in now and he ends up getting killed at the end but for bad they, ratings but okay. they didn't but they didn't have him killed in the first scene so I didn't get confused right. when I, when I well, saw that. the other two the other thing that he was very prescient about as, as you know it was just all, the whole reality TV show phenomenon which wasn't even really on the radar at all in 1976 and he had the symbionese liberation hour I think it was uh, where they're following the kidnappers around and uh, it was it's an amazing movie and another thing with it you know in Marty too every tiny character in those two movies feels so real and is so like precisely drawn these people get very brief screen time sometime but you really believe all of these characters and um, what they're doing what their motivations are it's just perfect movie and I, I enjoyed the book I, I bought it almost as soon as it came out yeah well um so I've been trying to develop to, to end each show a, a lightning round. Of, uh, okay. I, I didn't put this as much. Show felt like a lightning. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I didn't put as much work into it today as I okay. as I thought I would. Oh, so, really but I have three questions I want to ask you, just kind of quickly okay. to, to end on. So, okay. if I can, if I can remember them. First is, so I, I said Letterman, uh, Matthew Weiner, John Hamm, Don Rickles. You've interviewed them in the last two weeks. Who's the What's the worst celebrity interview you ever had? I'm not. I'm not going to say the name of the person, but it, you know, there is and, one in your head, though, isn't oh, there? Oh, sure. Okay. And it's, it was all my fault, but it, I mean, I was when I was still a freelancer, and I was writing. I wrote a cover story for Glamour magazine uh, about you know just a celeb of the moment, and you know 
the, what made this person so famous really at the time was not even her own work, but the fact that she was dating another famous actor. And I tried to Barbara Hershey. No, yes. no idea. Yes. <laughs> and so all, all of my questions were about her relationship with this person and what it's like to be dating this guy. And that was every question that I and she basically parried away all those questions, wouldn't answer any of them. And we found out like two or three days later that she and the boyfriend had like just broken up. Oh god! And we you're like to... rubbing salt in the wounds. And even... Yeah. And, but I'm also I'm so yeah. no, but I'm so naive and I'm just so like bad at reading her cues. Yeah, to this day, I would never, even even if that was the mission of the interview, I would never go in like that and just quiz somebody on their relationship from top to bottom. Just bad form on my part. Because my next question is about your relationships. No, it's um, <laughs> no. The question uh, question number two is the old. Stranded on a, de- a deserted island, kind of thing. Okay, or desert island, whatever they call it. So, uh, here's the twist. I don't know. I don't know how the like technology works in this, but you've got one complete set of DVDs for a show. You can watch. You're on the island for however long. Right. What's the one show you want the complete set of? Oh, it has to be The Simpsons. I mean, not only because you get like 27 seasons worth of yeah, episodes. But 19 but of the seasons are pretty bad. No. It's not pretty bad, but they're I not. Basically, have the whole history of TV is is somehow encompassed, bound up, parodied, and, and encrypted within that series. So, by just having that one box set, you have all of television. Because because uh, my my choice in this category would be the 1990 sitcom Uncle Buck. <laughs> I want, <laughs> uh, all right, here's here's the final question for the night. Uh, if you were not in journalism. What would you be doing uh, with your life? I would be at, at home raising my three-month-old son. I wish I could just spend all day with him. Well, that was that was the smart answer. Uh, Dave Vitzkoff, thank you so much for doing this. This was great. Thanks Appreciate it. Out. All right. And everybody, we'll, uh, we'll... Actually, I don't think we'll be back next week because it's Memorial Day. So we're going to be off next Monday, but we'll be back the Monday after that, June 1st. Do not have a guest lined up yet. I'm working on that. But I can also tell you the week after that, June 8th, we do have a guest lined up, Mr. Brian Stelter from CNN, formerly the New York Times. So he's going to be here. We'll be back then. Uh, enjoy your Memorial Day, and uh, we'll see you soon.